Welcome to the Language Games Podcast. My name is John Kaus. Today is part seven of our Van Til's Apologetic series. We are now going to start Van Til's Proof. So let's begin. All right, Van Til's first axiom is that the Bible plainly teaches all people know with certainty that God created the world. Now, this is our first assumption in the argument. So we are assuming that it is true that the Bible, this proposition, the Bible plainly teaches all, that all people know with certainty that God created the world. So this assumption then is, is an assumption in the argument. We call them axioms. So A1, A2, A3, these are going to be our axioms. And then as we go on, we'll define, we'll get to theorems, where theorems are going to be what we infer from the axioms. So as we talked about before, uh, axiom here would be like premise, and then theorem would be a conclusion. Just in, the, in this deduction, we're going to have many conclusions that lead then to our, what our goal is, which is to prove the truth of Christianity. All right, so Bible. What do I mean by Bible? Bible is the 66 books of the Protestant scriptures. And this assertion sign in logic, I use just more for convenience. Uh, but by that, I just mean plainly teaches or plainly asserts. And then the proposition then comes after it. It plainly asserts uh, that all people know with certainty that God created the world. Now, what do I mean by know? Uh, justify true belief. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought, you know, Gettier uh, has shown that justified true belief is not sufficient. It's insufficient for knowledge. And I disagree with that. And I addressed that in my Wittgenstein and apologetic series. So if you want more on that, uh, you can get that there. But justified true belief is a great definition for knowledge, and we're going to use it. Now, what does it mean to know with certainty? Well, in this argument, I'm using this definition of knowledge with certainty. This would be justified true belief such that the justification cannot be in error. And then what do I mean by God? By God, I mean the ontological trinity as revealed in the Bible. And then the world, I just mean the space-time universe. All right, now someone says, well, how do you show this to be true? You know, how do you know this to be true? Now, we don't defend it in the sense, in the sense of proving it. We don't have sub-sub, you know, axioms like, um, to then prove A1 because an A1 would be a theorem. It wouldn't be an assumption. But we can bring people to Scripture, right? This is us starting with Scripture and showing them what it teaches. So if I say the Bible plainly teaches uh, that all people know with certainty that God created the world, then you'd be fine to say, well, show me that in Scripture. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. So I'm not proving it here. I'm just showing you this act, the truth of this axiom uh, as played out in Scripture. So Psalm 19, 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, or the sky, sheweth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night sheweth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. So this is, knowledge is clear. It is all over creation to the ends of the world, and it's clear. Now someone says, well, yeah, but it just says the heavens here. Okay, but clearly the psalmist is talking about the heavens because that's the most obvious example of just overwhelming um, glory, right, of God coming over 
our, our experience. When we look up at the night sky, we can't help but be taken in by, by its beauty and its majesty. But of course, this applies to all of creation as well. The psalmist, of course, would not... Uh, if you said, hey, if I just raise people in caves and they never come out and see the sky, is God's glory then not shown to them? Is this knowledge that he, the knowledge doesn't reach inside the caves either? Of course, you know, the psalmist would deny that. And, and uh, Paul picks this up in Romans 1. So obviously, hearkening back to, to this psalm, he expands on it. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, or some translations would say suppress the truth. Okay, so they have the truth, but it's in unrighteousness. They don't hold it in worship, they hold it in rebellion. So they have the truth, and it's been revealed to them. Okay, and the the wrath of God obviously comes with this because they're in rebellion. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. This is not just the ability to know it. It's not like they have the possibility someday because they have some like ability inside them that will you know, kick on with certain experiences and then God becomes real to them. They have it. They hold the truth. It's, known, it's manifest in them by being made in the image of God. And also, obviously, when they interact with the world. For God hath shewed it unto them. Now look at this verse. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power in God has so that they are without excuse. This is not something we have to go out and you've got to make all these deductions or inferences from certain things in creation. The people, all people have this. They all have it, and it's clear, and they see it from, by the things that are made. It's also witnessed to them in their own being, as verse 19 says, and then therefore they're without excuse. They are without excuse. There is no, there's no objection. There's no argument against this. They know it, and it's, and it's plain, and they're, with, and they're without excuse. Now, of course, they reject this because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. They knew God, but didn't glorify him. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. They changed the truth. Well, if you're going to ch- if, you, if they changed it, they must have had it. Okay, they they knew God, had the truth, changed it into a lie. All right, so this is plain. You just read Psalm 19, read Romans 1, read their other verses as well. It is plain that man knows that God created, obviously, himself, but then also with it, the world. God is the creator of the world. And that knowledge is condemning to man. Now, someone says, yeah, I don't want to accept that axiom. You know, he sits back and says, I don't want to accept it. I don't have to accept it. Therefore, the argument just falls away. No, therefore, you have left the conversation. This axiom cannot intelligibly be denied. It would pull down language. It pulls it down. You cannot make sense of the Bible if you would deny that it's teaching this. Now, notice that we're not saying that the doctrine is true. Okay, we're saying that the Bible plainly teaches the doctrine. Okay, the Bible plainly teaches this. We're not saying that all men do know 
right, that God created the world. We're saying that the Bible plainly teaches it. So there's a distinction here. Now, what do you do if someone denies that plainness? Well, now this is a, a dispute of language and how it works. And this is a language error. Not all objections to the meaning of a text are acceptable. I'll give you an example. So if someone objected that the Lord of the Rings plainly teaches that Frodo is a hobbit, how would you respond? You would read him the text. What else can you do? I'm sorry, sir, but look, read the book for yourself. Look right here, here, look, Frodo's a hobbit. If he digs at his heels and still holds the objection, what would you do? You'd likely just give him a confused shrug and walk away in disbelief. You'd probably think there's something wrong with this person or he's just trying to be objectionable for the sake of being objectionable. But objections like these uh, examples pull down the game in which they make sense. So they must be ignored. They destroy themselves. We are playing the game of reason and apologetics. If you want to play the game of foolishness, then you are welcome to it. But we want, but we want no part of that game. So if you want to dig in your heels, that's fine. This is how language works. And so your objection only has meaning if you reject your, your uh, rejection. You reject your objection. Your objection cannot stand. And this is part of God's word being self-attesting. Bonson writes, this must be his method because the word of God in the Bible has a unique epistemological status for the Christian. It requires no corroboration and carries its own evidence inherently or self-attestingly. Okay, so notice God's word is self-attesting to man and as such is condemning to man if he does not repent. There must then be a connection between man's intellect and the meaning of the message. And this message must be plain if it, is, if it does not need further uh, corroboration. So the Bible's uh, teachings are plain. And if you deny the plainness, which is different than denying the doctrine, if you deny the plainness and they are plain and it can be shown to you, then your objection has to fall away. Unless we were to give up reason at that point. All right, another one person says, well, hey, uh, the church fathers are silent on this issue, so it can't be plain. The church fathers captured all plain teachings in the past, and so this was not addressed by the church fathers, and so it's not a plain teaching. Well, I'd first ask, <laughs> define the age in which the church fathers actually lived. When was that? When, and when, so when did that end? If, if, the church, if church history goes on for another 10,000 years, wouldn't the theologians of the 20th century be church fathers? Of course they would. This is, this is just arbitrarily defined to fit some person's objection when really their definition of church fathers uh, should include theologians even of the last 50 years, if they were to be consistent. But let's just assume that the objection is true. Okay, let's just give it to the person that this church fathers for stopped in, I don't know, 80, 1750 or something. That, that's when the church father age ended. Let's assume that's true. So what? The church fathers did not address every plain teaching of scripture. This can be clearly shown. Many of the doctrines that are covered in the Defending Young Earth Creation series, uh, which I did uh, previously, was not addressed in any great detail by the church fathers, yet they are plain doctrines. Go to your Bible. I will just read. Read Genesis. Read the rest of Scripture. These doctrines are plain. Another example is relationship of God's infinity to the infinities in mathematics. 
is God's infinity, we say God's infinite, clearly we want that to be meaningful, okay? So what do you mean by that? Is it the same as the infinities in mathematics? The church fathers are largely silent on this issue, and when they do talk about God being infinite, they largely make mistakes since they had no clear concept of what infinity in mathematics even is. And this concept in mathematics even took a radical shift with Cantor in like the 1880s when it was discovered that mathematics, the infinities in mathematics are not all of, this, of the same size. In fact, there are an infinite number of infinities that are all different sizes. And, and this is mind-boggling. Okay, a lot of people didn't want to accept it at the time. But if you take God's infinity and you say it's, this, it's univocal to an infinity in mathematics, well, then you can pick some higher infinity of a larger size in mathematics that's greater than God's infinity, that's larger than God's infinity. And of course, that's clearly wrong. That's clearly an error. So it is a plain teaching that God's infinity is not univocal to any infinity in mathematics. Did the church fathers know this? Did they address it? Of course not. And yet it's plain. So... This objection does not understand the relationship of the church to the plain teachings of Scripture. Scripture and Scripture alone bears the markings of this plainness. The church discovers the plain teachings, and this discovery is still happening today. All right, well, that's it for this episode. Next week, we'll continue through to work through the proof. For more content like this, you can find us on x at underscore language games. See you next time.